Likewise, the question is the Esai who opposed the people of the Sunnah. Is Allah in a place, in a Makan? Use the word Makan, okay? This is an innovative wording. Neither we find in the Quran or the Sunnah the word Makan used. And therefore, when we are, when we are expounding and explaining our beliefs, we will not use these innovative wordings, but we must adhere to the wording employed by the Quran and Sunnah and avoid all innovative words. However, there is a corollary to this principle, and that is if there is a wording which is not employed by the Quran and Sunnah. And for instance, we find in some book, somebody uses the word Makan, or somebody asks you, is Allah in a place, using the word Makan, for instance. We then must now investigate into the meaning of his word. In the sense that he's now used a term which is not, not found in the Quran and the Sunnah. We must investigate in which context he's using it. If that context he's using is correct, we accept the meaning, although we say we will not use those words. And if the meaning is incorrect, we reject both the wording and the meaning. Huh? Examples like the one in Makkah. An Ash'ari comes to you, he sees you on Salah al-Jum'ah, and you explaining that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is above his throat. He grabs you after the khutbah. That happens to me in real life. And he says to you, so you're, you're putting Allah in a place, in a makan. I say to him, what? What is the response? What is the response that Ahlul Jum'ah have been using towards these people? First of all, that this term makan is neither in the Quran or the Sunnah. So I'm not going to accept your claim that I have placed Allah in a Makan. Because this word is not used in Quran Sunnah. And I only describe Allah as He has described Himself, or as His Prophet has described Him. I will not innovate the description for Allah. But let me ask you now, what do you mean by this? If you mean that Allah is encompassed by one of His creations, whether it's the heavens, whether it's the clouds, or whatever, then we say this is a false understanding. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told in the Quran that his kursi, his footstool, is as wide as the heavens and the earth. And the kursi, as the Prophet said, in terms of the arsh, his throne, is like taking a ring or a coin and throwing it, a ring, throwing it in a desert. And the arsh is so large, that nobody can estimate it except for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as the Prophet mentioned. And Allah is Allahu Akbar, is great. So, if you mean by this statement that you're saying that I, that I believe, or that I'm trying to imply that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is surrounded by His creation, surrounded by six sides and so forth, and this is a false understanding that you have misunderstood what I'm saying, and I am rejecting both your usage of this term and also your understanding. But, if you're saying, trying to say that I am saying that Allah is above the creation, and that there is nothing above Allah, and this is what you're describing as the word makan, place, then therefore, this is what I am believing. Yes, Allah is above His creation, there is nothing above Him from His creation. As the Prophet mentioned, the throne is the, the dome of the creation. There is nothing higher than the throne, it's the highest part of the creation, Allah is above His throne. Okay? However, this word makan, has both an incorrect meaning and a correct meaning to it, so I will not use it to describe Allah, because Allah has neither described himself with that, nor has his prophesied So this is an example of this, of this principle. That we adhere to the wording employed by the Quran and the Sunnah, and we avoid all innovative wording, and 
when somebody uses innovative wording, we investigate into that meaning. If that meaning, that innovative wording, has a, both a correct and an incorrect connotation, we accept the correct meaning and we reject the incorrect connotation. Of course, not using the word. Obviously, if the meaning has, the innovative wording has both a, has a completely wrong understanding to it, has no correct understanding to it, then of course, uh, by reason, we are going to reject both that, the wording and the no, no, go on, go on. Okay. This is a different issue. This is an issue now of, you know, trying to translate these to explain these meanings to the person who is incapable of understanding Arabic. That's true. That's true, but that's that's a different issue. That's a different issue. Right now we're talking about in terms of exposing the spreading the, the explaining the aqidah. I mean nobody has, you know, neither from Ahl Sunnah or from the people of the guys says that the aqidah is to be explained, for instance, in English or in Urdu or something like that. They all are in agreement that the 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 language of this religion is the Arabic language, right? So the question now is which words in the Arabic language are permissible to use or not? Can you innovate words? But the question of can you translate this to people who do not speak Arabic and use words, this is an issue uh, in itself, which is, uh, you know, another discussion. Okay, principle number um, eight, inshallah. Eight, yeah, and we only have three more principles, inshallah. Principle number eight says that that in a, infallibility, or an isma, is the Arabic word. Okay, Isma. Isma. Which I translate as infallibility. Infallibility from both sin and error. From sin and error. Is only affirmed to the Prophet And here in sin there's a difference about can the prophets do minor sin and so forth. But that's that's we're talking in general. It only affirms the Prophet and the Ummah as a whole is infallible from falling into error, into an error. That's why, because that's why their ijma is a proof, their unanimous consensus is a proof. Any single person, from this rule we now have, okay, we said that ijma, ijma is infallible from sin errors only affirms the Prophet and the Ummah as a whole is infallible from falling, agreeing all in error. We have now a point from this that any other individual, therefore, is not ma'asum, is not infallible from sin and error. No matter who that person is, whether it's from the companions or from the latter-day members of the ummah. And therefore, when people, that's the, 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 the thing, so nobody else, no one else in the ummah has this characteristic. No one else has this. And, we I mean, of course, in this ummah. I mean, obviously the other prophets, you know, do have, we're talking about people in this ummah. And therefore, when people differ, what do we do when people differ? We must refer it back to the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Because since Isma is only found in the Prophet Sallallahu and, and, and the revelation which the Prophet Sallallahu brought, therefore when people differ, we must refer it back to that infallible source, which is the revelation. And also, another part of it is that we must put forward excuse for the mujtahid of this ummah. In other words, those scholars which are known 
to adhere to the Quran and the Sunnah and their beliefs and their actions and their morals and their manners, they are not known to have any deviation from that. They're always seeking the truth. When they make a mistake, we must put afford an excuse for them. We cannot hold them blameworthy saying that they purposely intended to, um, you know, go against the Quran and the Sunnah. Alright, this is the eighth principle. Is this clear? Or do you need more time? No. Uh, Israel, the, the what? No, I tell, I tell my line, the Prophet, Prophet, of course, Prophets in general, obviously. All but our discussion basically is in this Ummah. So we just, I tried to mention the Prophet, Prophet. But obviously all Prophets have this quality. You know. but, uh, and the little errors we no, we mean errors, of course. I mean, over here, this is, you know, I mean, this is when I've really, explained it, the, the point is full of, it means errors in conveying the revelation. It doesn't mean errors in terms of their, uh, you know, worldly, mundane matters and so forth. And, you know, in conveying the revelation. Okay? So, it's, it's understood. So, therefore, those scholars who make a mistake in the almost we must advance an excuse for them, okay? We find any scholar of Islam who holds a position which we uh, find to be incorrect. We cannot then therefore say that he purposely went against the Quran and Sunnah and therefore he is sinful, he's a, uh, he's a heretic, he's a mukhedah, he's a kafir, he's a fasid and so forth. No. If he's known that he adheres, overall adheres to the Quran and Sunnah, and again, according to this whole thing, Ibn Taymiyyah has a whole little essay concerning this called Rafa al-Maram. Uh, which he explained this principle and explained why did the scholars, you know, deviate from the Quran and Sunnah that even though they never intend that, that sometimes it occurs and what might lead them to that. And Imam al-Shafi spoke about this in the Rinsala and other, and other scholars throughout the history. So that's the eighth point and this could be very tasteful. Inshallah we have time to uh, come back and discuss these things in more detail. Okay, that's so since we now have talked about that there's going to be differences between people, right? We come to this principle, which I guess is number nine, that to argue falsely in matters of religion in general, and of course in Aqidah more, uh, is forbidden. As far arguing in a manner which is fast, a manner which is fast, fast, it is permissible. As Allah says in the Quran, وَجَاجِلْهُمْ Argue with them, meaning the Christians and Jews, or, I mean, people you can doubt to in general, in a manner which is fast. Arguing falsely means what? Arguing, knowing that the truth is with the person you're arguing with, but just because you don't want to submit. Or, arguing falsely means arguing out of ignorance. Right? Speaking out of ignorance and so forth. And this is what means arguing falsely. And that's why we have, the, for instance, the uh, hadith. And I'm not certain of its authenticity, but the meaning is correct, at least. Al-mira'u fil Qur'an kufr. That to argue concerning the Qur'an is kufr, you see. And the Prophet ﷺ warned Ummah about striking the Book of Allah, you know, part of it was against another part, and others arguing concerning the Qur'an and so forth. This is the way which caused the destruction of the previous people. So this is a very important principle. We said now, we've shown that differences do occur among the scholars, so therefore we cannot argue men are false. We have some principles which are derived from this, among which is that, uh, that there are certain matters which it is forbidden to talk about, forbidden to uh, argue or investigate or you know, pursue 
and we must therefore refrain from delving into. For instance, like that question that brothers brought up uh, during the break, as to why is the wisdom of Allah's actions, and trying to ask, well, why did Allah do this, and why does Allah do this, and why does Allah do this? This is something which we've been refrained from delving into. Allah says in the Quran that they do not uh, ask him what he does, but he asks them concerning their deeds. And likewise, the Prophet in a hadith is mentioned that he forbade discussion concerning al-wildan. Al-wildan here is a term means those people who, of uh, the children of the disbelievers, who die before reaching the age of maturity. Will they go to paradise or will they go to hell? The Prophet said this ummah will remain in a good state so long as they do not enter into this discussion. And uh, they have entered, uh, unfortunately, people entered into this discussion centuries ago, and there's at least 17 opinions concerning this matter. But the point is, is that to argue, because it's a matter which is not really, uh, it doesn't really bring much to the discussion, doesn't bring much benefit. At the same time, it's a matter which is not very uh, clear, and people can sometimes leave this to discuss, at least to discuss about Allah's attributes, his justice and his wisdom and so forth, so it leads to a loss of speculation and false discovery. Yeah, this is a specific matter. There are, there are certain specific matters that the Prophet has forbade that the Sharia has permitted us for us to delve into. But in general, in, in general, we should not speculate into matters which we, there is no, I mean, you know, real. Allah's effect. Right, Allah's effect and so forth. Yeah, that's another example. Okay, which one number do we read? Oh. How many did I mention? One. Okay. Yeah, maybe there's only two correlates. Okay. The second one is that, uh, that a Muslim should never speak about any matter without knowledge. <coughs> Rather, if he doesn't know anything, he should refrain knowledge of that matter to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we know, like, for instance, the hadith of Mu'ad. The Prophet asked him a question, he says, Allahu wa Rasuluhu a'lam. The Sahaba understood this very clearly, you know, and this is their, uh, always their, their manner and their disposition, that they would not speak about that. Even sometimes when they would, know, they would think they would know the answer, they would be shy to say something. Like in the time when the Prophet mentioned about the tree, which is mentioned in uh, the Quran, the good tree, and he said, do you know what tree it is? Ibn Umar said he felt that he was the palm tree, but he didn't say anything. So the Prophet explained who was the palm tree, and then he told his father, and Allah said, oh, I wish you had mentioned that in front of the Prophet Because obviously, a source of pride for one's son to know the correct answer in front of the Prophet So, the point is, is that um, the Sahaba understood that they wouldn't you know, talk as we have. Unfortunately, now people seem to talk things that they know not and causes a lot of confusion. And it's also a great sin because Allah in the Quran says when he mentions the sin, he mentions shirk and then he says, well, and to Allahi. So Ibn Qayyim and others have said this shows that the, the sin of speaking about Allah out of ignorance, which also means speaking about his religion ignorance, is as great, but not greater than, Ibn Qayyim is greater than the sin of shirk. Okay, so it's a very serious matter to speak out of ignorance concerning Allah or his religion or the Prophet of so any of these matters. What, what number did we read? Can we finish on? Okay, so 10 is the... Um, is the, uh, we have one, two more principles, that every, you know, every big act, right, every innovation, 
Okay, is a bid'ah. My heresy, is a heresy, bid'ah. And all of these heresies are in the hellfire. This is clear from a hadith, right? I don't think it needs too much. Every innovation. You know, when people innovate matters of belief and so forth, this is all a heresy, a false belief, a bid'ah. And every, all these heresies are in the hellfire. All these bid'ahs are in the hellfire. And the eleventh principle, which is the last one, that, okay, since we now have shown that there are innovations, right? When we refute we must adhere to that same methodology, Anasim al Jama'ah, in refuting method and, uh, uh, innovation. So, uh, when refuting, we must adhere to the same methodology uh, of revelation, okay, the methodology of revelation, uh, which we employ in confirming our belief. That if you can read this writing, when refuting, we must adhere to the same methodology of revelation uh, which we employed in confirming our belief. So therefore, the corollary that is, we might, the corollary is that we cannot face extremism with negligence or negligence with extremism. And I'll give you a quick example with this will inshallah finish this uh, session. <coughs> when people, like the Khawarij, who first appeared, uh, killed Ali ibn Khalid, and they showed enmity to the Prophet's family, right? Another group of Muslims, the Shia, faced this negligence of the rights of the Prophet's family with an extremism on their part. In the sense they did what? They deified and they overplaced the positions of the Prophet's family. And likewise, when the Khawaj appeared and considered people who committed major sins to be disbelievers, Another group appears saying that sin doesn't impair faith. That, you know, no matter what you do, your faith is still perfect and unharmed. And that faith is only words and has an action to not enter into iman. So therefore, we want to refute these people of Bidah. We cannot innovate ways of refuting them. We must use the same method used in the Quran and Sunnah. And we cannot face the negligence with, uh, you know, extremism on our part or their extremism with negligence on our part. Concerning anything. This is a general principle for, uh, for all matters. This principle of refutation itself is a full manhaj which has 20 principles underneath it. So, inshallah, tomorrow, or we'll see what we'll have a chance to uh, discuss it. But the point is, is that, brothers, that, you know, after we explain the, the, the five, uh, the, 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 the sources which Aqid Ahasim Jamal is based upon, and the seven unique characteristics, right? We now place together eleven, right? Correct. Eleven principles, right? Which form the foundation of Ahasim Jumaan deriving their belief. As I said that, you know, one of those principles, Ibn Taymiyyah, expounded upon in ten volumes. And no way can we feel that by our rushing through it that we have done justice to these topics. In fact, we actually ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for doing this work and really treating the topic in such a much of a shabby manner. But the point is I'm just we're trying to uh, familiarize ourselves with this, right? We may lay a, lay a foundation for a curious study of the correct aqidah, right? Which is a foundation of our faith. 
And hopefully, inshallah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bless us all that we will have an ability to sit and learn these principles in great detail with knowledgeable people, knowledgeable scholars that we can benefit from their knowledge of. And the Quran is that we can make further understanding principles. Again, these principles, also the other point that we mentioned earlier, are not something which are hard and fast, in the sense that this is just what one scholar, uh, who, that work I translated in the Shia magazine mentioned, and I used it as a, as a, as a uh, learning tool. Uh, you might find other works by other authors who use different, uh, you know, different ways of classifying or different ways of numbering it, and we shouldn't feel by that that these are different ways, therefore, principles which are incorrect or so forth. Okay? That's something important. Allah <laughs> So if there's any questions, I'll be glad to uh, entertain them if I may. Uh, if I can, uh, the next <laughs> They said the Isma of the Prophet deals with two matters. The Isma in terms of his, which, which would cause fault in his personality in the sense that he would not be justified to be a Prophet. I mean, obviously a Prophet cannot be a sinful person, right? Cannot be a person of, like, not like the Christians imagine the Prophets and the Jews and they say that. You know, Noah got drunk and he had sex with his daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, Luke, not Noah, uh, Luke, yes, uh, Luke had, Noah got drunk and, and, and uncovered himself. Luke had sex with his daughter. Uh, David, you know, uh, wanted another woman and he sent that person out to Jihad to kill him so he could save that man's life. And so that man practiced sorcery. This is all false beliefs and super beliefs. So the prophets cannot have anything in their personality which denies which would be a false, and therefore they would not be justified to be chosen to be prophets. Either before their prophethood or after their prophethood. Likewise, when they are sent with a message, they cannot do anything which will not cause the conveying of the message completely. Everything else, there's differences between the kingdom of God. Like minor sins, which do not cause them either to fall short in conveying the message, or uh, is a which disfigures their character so they are not worthy of the of talking about. Uh, say strongest or not strongest, I don't want to say. But I mean, uh, there's a lot of different statements and stuff. But I mean, there's evidence which shows they do do minor sins because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned like the ayat of the text to forgive that which has preceded you from sin, which will come. And this seems that, that this is, in fact, some scholars argue that the fact that the prophets do sin, okay, it makes them more perfect. In the sense that when a person sins, and he can, three things can happen. A sin can cause him to become worse, or one sin leads to another sin. Or, a sin can, he might repent from that sin, but he doesn't really change, he sort of stays the same, right? Or he might make a sin and then he makes repentance. And because he repents, he does a lot more good deeds, okay, and that makes him better than he was before the sin. So they use this argument to say that the prophets, when they have these minor sins, because then they are afraid of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, 
for these insignificant sins, and they do so much acts of worship that they have a higher, it leads them to being a higher status and a higher stature. And that's, inshallah, the Allah Sin and error? I don't know. What, because the problem is that the word sin here and the word error too is in English, so I don't know what you're trying to... I mean, I mean, I mean, I don't know what you're trying to, I mean, we're trying to, I mean, say, I mean, that because, I mean, an error, to me, you know, if I'm just thinking English, and a sin would be, sin would have something to do with the religion, error would be a worldly matter. Yeah. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I meant, I meant in terms of conveying revelation and something which will, uh, uh, make the character unworthy of receiving. Uh, but, you know, in the, in the um, but you know that, for instance, right? The word Hafaya, uh, right? It's used for sin, right? And, uh, and, and also Islam. Now, is there some sort of difference in Aqidah or in Sikh? I don't have to tell Who's our second teacher? Yeah. Was he or was he not not in the school? He's what you mean by ma'asum, this is the point. Well, I think that if he's a case, then he's infallible. Right, but I'm saying, but what degree of infallibility? This is the issue. I think that they are implying that he was a thousand all men. Not only that of today, but he was a it is a matter of, uh, he talks about the, as far as he has a sunnah, he has a sunnah, he didn't talk about an etna. Before revelation. <coughs> oh, I, mean, I don't, I don't like this issue of an etna, I don't like to do this stuff, you know. One of those issues which I don't like to, discuss. Because you know why? Because you see, when you discuss it, invariably it opens up this door. That you talk about how was the Prophet Sallallahu you know, I'm saying, uh, before prophethood. And, the question about sins, and then people, the questions usually delve into more and more detail, so much so that sometimes, you know, in trying to explain the point, you might say something which, you know, might be interpreted or implied as some sort of disparaging remark towards the Holocaust. So I've tried to, you know, besides the very uh, general statements and things, uh, stop it at that point. Because not, not to, in trying to explain that you might say something which is, you know, was not the Holocaust. Yeah, yeah. That's true. a good point, not so. I mean, you know, I mean, and this is why, I mean, the term Aqidah itself, as I alluded to it earlier in the first discussion, right, that if you look at the term in its mode, as some scholars seem to indicate, like Sekhara Bujay, it seems to have some sort of foundation the Eshari believes, you know, and there might be some sort of problems with this. And I'll give you an example. The word Aqidah means to not and to tie, right? So it assumes that you're dealing with matters of belief only. So what about the matters of action? You see, well, Iman is more general, and it includes, includes linguistically, it includes, deeds can be included linguistically into Iman. So, this is a problem. Every word, outside the Quran, enough, invariably in those words will be some fault to it. And that the, the bayan, the clarification of that, will not be to its fault. 
what I meant by adhere in the sense that in very specific matters, like in describing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and uh, describing like the paradise and so forth, these are you know, things that are matters of the unseen to adhere to the Quran and Sunnah. But in some matters, there's some room in it, you know, like in the discussion of like in, when it comes to like classification and so forth. You say three types of Tawheed or Tawheed of Enemy or three types of Tawheed and Tawheed of Saturday and so forth. And in this sense, there's some room in it. But the setup, of course, where, you know, they didn't use these types of words. Obviously, their way is better, more knowledgeable, more what? More sound. But the scholar can use it, so it's, there's no harm. There's a fine difference with Allah. Now, nothing. It's not about this. I think somehow my words, I, I fully conveyed myself. When I said Nurun ala Nur, I didn't mean some group of people. I meant that one of the explanations that it means the light of revelation falling upon the light of the Fitra. That in the sense that, you know, people when they are, their Fitra is uncorrupted and they read the Quran and the it increases them in their faith. Now, as far as the people who disbelievers who don't believe in revelation, right? Obviously, as I mentioned, that when the Prophet first came to people Mecca, they neither believed in him nor they believed in the Quran. So there were arguments of reason. But the point is, those arguments of reason, are they arguments of reason? invent ourselves or do we use the argument of reason which Allah has mentioned in the Quran? That Allah has argued you to disbelieve with it. ولا بالكتاب. الله سبحانه وتعالى حاججهم بأدلة عقلية. عرفتم؟ الآن نحن نريد نقنع الكفار أن محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم حق وأن القرآن حق. فلا بد نستعمل حجج عقلية. لكن السؤال هنا هل نستعمل حجج عقلية نحن قد قمنا باختراعها أو نستعمل الحجج العقلية التي أثبته الله سبحانه وتعالى في كتابه. The second one. And that's the whole point. That Allah in the Quran has mentioned arguments of Jesus. Like the one about the back that mentioned the resurrection from the dead. That if Allah created you in the first place, would it be difficult for him to take you after your death? This is a hijjah aqliyah. But who mentioned this hijjah? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if you want to obviously discuss the kuffar, you can say to them, it doesn't make sense to you to say to them, okay, 
comes to a kafir, he doesn't believe in his resurrection after death. Say, okay, Allah says in the Quran. And he's the first person who doesn't believe in the Quran. He's not the correct argument. But we use an argument of reason to show him why there is the possibility of resurrection. What argument are we going to use? Are we going to use the argument made up by some philosopher, and, you know, Greek philosopher, or some sort of person who's influenced by Greek philosophy? Or are we going to use those urges, those arguments used by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran? Or those arguments used by the Prophet in his authentic This is the whole, the whole thing. So unfortunately what people did, when those those people who used them in Salaam, when they felt that the Quran of the Sunnah was not complete, was not perfect, that it was in it does not have those evidences, inside the book itself, and inside the Sunnah itself, they went and they invented their own means of argument. And those means of argument are usually incorrect. And if they're correct, they are incomplete. So the fault was because they felt in the first place the Quran and the Sunnah was insufficient, they had to go use something else. Had they truly believed that the Quran and the Sunnah was sufficient, they wouldn't have gone somewhere else. And if they couldn't find those evidences in the Quran and the Sunnah, they should realize it wasn't because the Quran and the Sunnah was incomplete, but because their own understanding was weak. Because they have, you know, a second process. They couldn't understand these arguments of reason which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has placed in the Quran. And this is the whole argument between the people of Hadith and the people of Salam, Abdul Salam. Between the Sunnis and the Ash'ari and the Qawafis of Allah. The second question is here from the first question. But the point is that Allah in the Quran says that they do not come to you, O Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, with an example, the Muslims, except that we come with a better one than that. You know, and Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala says, مَا فَرَقْنَا فِي الْكِتَابِ مِنْ شَيْءٍ We have not left anything in the book on, you know, and he says that the Quran is an explanation of everything. So, there's nothing in the Quran that you would need outside. But the question of using examples, you know what I'm saying, that's where the, the, the Quran uses an argument. Okay, let's say the Quran says to the people of the Kuffar, right? People of Mecca, and so it's Have they not looked at the camel, how it was created? Now, this is an example that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has used. One argument of reason. You might go to some part of the earth and come to some inhabitants, and the people have neither heard of camels or seen of camels. I mean, so, I mean, obviously, if you were to replace them with something which they understand in this, there's no harm. This is a different, completely different issue. But that doesn't discuss the, the whole point that is, do you need an argument, a, a line of reasoning outside of the Quran? No, you don't need that. Like you mentioned, if um, you make a point that the point you made about the Sufa doesn't even believe in the revelation, right. so how can you establish an argument against them when we don't even accept the revelation? In any case, they are using his own book to establish arguments against them. When you know, the, the, proof, the, the truth is there, 
although it is much thought in the future, their opinion after going to their own book is an argument against Okay, I asked you a question. Let me reverse it. Answer your question with your question. The way people use the book of the people of the, of the scriptures in, as an argument against it, is it the same method as we find in the Quran referring to the previous book? No. No. And so that means that's one of the problems with the people's arguments today when they try to use the previous scriptures. Yes. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tries to show them that in the previous scriptures there are things the Quran confirms it and the Quran tells about things which only their scholars know about. And how could the Prophet sitting in Mecca would have realized this had not come from by revelation and so forth? There are arguments of reason. But the, the methodology which is used by most of the people today in trying to give Dawah to the Christians by dissecting their books, where the person is more knowledgeable of the Bible than he is of the Quran and the Hadith, this is an innovative methodology, in my opinion, you know, without doubt, huh? I mean, it's okay to use that. I mean, the scholars have used it. What I'm trying to say is that there's a certain thrust to it. You know, saying the thrust is that there's a certain methodology which Allah has used to discuss the Quran, the Jews and the Christians, to give them doubt. And the Prophet had a certain methodology. Are we now going to forsake what Allah and the Prophet came with? So how would the people, you know, fancy today? That's the whole point. Allah, yeah. So that's definitely